I want to title today is just simply this. It's a uh, titled A Renewed Humanity. And, and that's what I see kind of arise within Acts chapter 20. So what I want to do is I'm going to read just a handful of verses uh, that we will naturally already progressively be within. Uh, I'll pray and then I'll begin to kind of give some backstory as to um, what's happening here in the passage. And then I'll finish with some conclusions, uh, some thoughts to conclude with. So let me, uh, let me pray real quick and then we'll read and then we'll jump in. Yeah, I think I just reversed the order. I think I first said, let's read, and then I'll pray, but I just reversed it. So I'll pray, and then we'll read. Is that cool? You guys cool with that? All right. God, thank you so much for allowing us to be here. God, as, as, as people that truly want to be transformed by you, we just, God, say that everything that we have is a gift from you. It's a gift to be stewarded. It's a gift to be given back to you. It's a gift, God, that is to bless us so that we, in turn, would be blessings with our lives, with our energy, with our money, with our resources, with our knowledge, uh, with our understanding of the gospel. God, so I I pray that you would transform our hearts. Uh, Thank you, God, that our salvation does not come to us by being better people, but God, as salvation comes to us, it changes us. It transforms us. The gospel makes us new people. We become a renewed, a brand new humanity. That's what you're making upon this planet, within this earth, uh, and God, one day over all creation. So God, we ask you right now that you would uh, give our hearts and our minds the ability to stay focused, to uh, find ourselves free from distractions, to listen to your word, to apply it to our heart, God, to be ultimately transformed people. So we give you this time right now. Help my words to be cohesive, help my words to make sense. And God, areas where they don't, I pray that you would just fill in the blanks and that you would breathe life over this congregation of your people. Bring healing, God, in our, in our culture at large. Uh, God, those places where there's just sheer, uh, clear uh, brokenness. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to be those that bring life and healing. So, uh, give us ears to hear, Lord, what the Spirit is saying. Give us the ability to hear the cries of the oppressed and the hurting to show forth your peace, your life, and your wholeness through Jesus. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. We all said, amen. All right, so I'm going to read in Acts chapter 20. I'm just going to read verse 17 down to verse 24. Uh, you can follow along. If you guys have your Bibles open, you can just follow along. If not, we also have it up on the screen. Starts off with this and says, Now from Miletus, which is a a seaport city, he sent uh, to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. That's Paul the Apostle. Um, Verse 18, it says, And when he came to them, uh, when they came to him, he said to them, so what's going to happen now is, is Paul is going to be sitting down having basically a meeting, a conversation. It's a sort of farewell speech, if you would, to a group of people that he's invested a lot of uh, memories and emotion and energy and love uh, into. And now Paul recognizes that there's a very good likelihood that he'll never see these people again. We'll talk a little bit more about who these people are in just a moment. Um, but this is, a, this is a pretty emotional, this is a pretty raw Moment. So I want you to imagine in your mind Paul the Apostle uh, sitting down with a group of people that at one point he had no idea who they were. And at one point these, for the most part, Paul would have seen these guys as sort of enemies of God. Now these people are brothers to Paul the Apostle himself. And he, in his mind, he's going to, uh, in this speech, he's going to basically tell them, I, I don't think I'm ever going to see you guys again. So imagine sitting down with a group of people that you've fallen in love with. You've, you've, uh, you've bled with, you've sweat with, you've cried with, you've uh, given your energy, your money to, 
and you have watched them transform. Uh, there's these bonds that are there. So Paul, this is a speech that's filled with angst and pathos, and this is what's happening here as Paul begins to unpack all this. Then he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time when from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. I'm going to keep reading, so I think that ends right there, but I'm just going to keep reading. Verse 20 says, How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, verse 21, and testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit continuously testifies to me every single day that imprisonment and afflictions and oppression await me. Verse 24 says, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. All right. So this is what's happening here in the passage. And this is why I, I, I think this is a really important passage is kind of pause and to kind of peel back some of the layers and understand a little bit of maybe some of the things that may easily be uh, missed just by a pure casual reading of the passage. And here's what I mean. I want to break this down basically by three different contexts that I want to look at. Number one is I want to look at the context of the scriptural narrative at large, meaning the big overarching theme or narrative of the Bible itself. So uh, we will basically cover that entire Bible in just a, a minute. You're welcome. Um, and then we'll also take a look at the context of the book of Acts, like how, in what context does the book of Acts, the story that we've been reading, and in for a very long amount of time, how, what type of context is this embedded in? And then we'll take a look at the context of Paul's life and ministry. In other words, what in the world did Paul see himself up to doing, and what did Paul see himself uh, commissioned to do for God? Paul obviously had a mission. He saw himself on a mission. Well, what, what in the world did Paul think that he was actually doing? And then finally... We'll uh, look at the context of uh, Acts 19, this specific chapter. And uh, and finally, I'll just kind of finish with some uh, uh, closing uh, thoughts or remarks on on all this. So so there we go. That's that's the outline. Number one, let's take a look at the context of the scriptural narrative. And I'll be pretty quick on these. Um, So number one, the context of the scriptural narrative, that that God will. These are basically three ways in which you can think about this throughout all of the Bible story, uh, that God will one day... Uh, God, okay, you can go back even further than this. Again, this is, I'm, I'm kind of picking up this biblical story after uh, the fall, what we would call the fall. But God's plan had actually predated this. Like God's intention was to create a humanity that reflected him, that was going to be in partnership with God, that was going to walk with God, love God, serve God, and respond to God, and partner with God in this world to uh, create a world that was, that was good and beautiful and, and filled with blessing. And yet, unfortunately, what happened was mankind uh, basically went rogue. They rebelled and turned against God. And rather than being partners with God, uh, basically became, set themselves up as enemies against God. This, that's what happened. So if you're wondering, like, what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve basically uh, ate of this forbidden fruit, is it, that was their expressiveness saying no to God. So, so think of a two-year-old to mom or dad. When mom or dad says, you know, don't run into the street, and the kid turns around, gives that like smirk of a look and then turns around and then makes a beeline into the street. That sense of defiance, have you, have you ever seen that? Have you ever observed that? Uh, have you ever done that? Like, yeah, yeah, we're all, we're all guilty of that. That sense of defiance is sort of embedded into us as human beings. 
Um, and what we do, if you kind of keep taking that all the way up to the very highest uh, source uh, in all the cosmos, that's God. Like, we have this rebellious streak in us that simply says no to God. And so, therefore, saying no to God brings about consequences. Uh, in the garden, we see the consequence being a banishment, banishment from this tree of life. Uh, so, so, again, this idea of life, living, truly living, uh, by saying no to God was not a pathway of greater life. It was actually, actually a pathway to death. Uh, banishment is what happened. Um, another way to think about this within the biblical story is exile. Um, that the people of Israel, um, that's another form of banishment, sort of the other side of, of the coin of, of a banishment. So you have banishment and exile. So when we as human beings uh, have sort of this mentality that says no to God, it doesn't lead to greater life. It doesn't lead to, lead to greater light. It doesn't lead to greater love. It actually leads to death, darkness, and a sense of exclusion. In other words, you want to put it in another context, it leads to a place of aloneness. We're lost. We're alone. And I think it would be safe to say that much of our culture today is in this status. We don't know who we are. We've lost our sense of a per- personhood. We've lost our sense of purpose. We've lost our sense of awareness as to where we're at. We've lost our sense of homeness, being home, or where is home, what is home by definition, how would we define home? These are all demonstrations or examples of banishment and exile. Banishment and exile. So, now going back to like this scriptural narrative, like this overarching theme that we see that God is up to doing within this world. So we see, number one, that God promises to one day do away with evil and rebellion or sin. His way of doing away with this is a biblical term of judge. God will one day rise up and deal with it. And uh, this idea of sin and rebellion within this world at large. The second thing that we see is that he will promise the one to do away with evil and rebellion in us. Uh, and and that's, that's a huge promise. Because the reality is that the, the sin is not just simply out there. Or the brokenness or rebellion is not just simply out there in another country inhabiting another uh, uh, ethnic reality or another race or another skin color. The, the, the real sin and rebellion lay within the core of every one of us. And so, finally, we also see, thirdly, is that, that God promises to bring healing ultimately to the world. And I wrote in parentheses here that uh, though there will be those who will refuse to acknowledge uh, their complicity and or collaboration with evil, evil. So there will be those that will just say, I'm not collaborating with evil, and I'm not complicit with evil, and I'm my own person. I make my own decisions. I do what I want to do. And so I'm not part of the system of, of evil. And in other words, this is idea of what the Bible would say is, is denial. We live in denial of this, this, uh, this disease, this dis-ease, this sin that's at the core of our very being. And, uh, and, and thus, uh, we will not return or turn away from these things and then ultimately receive God's, God's healing. Um, I like the way one person described well, a Christian, really. A Christian is just simply someone that turns to Jesus and say, will you heal me? That's really what a Christian is. A Christian's not perfect. A Christian's not uh, going to be necessarily, I mean, in some cases, hopefully, as they grow and change their morality and their life and their generosity and all these types of things will change. But at the very core of it, uh, a Christian is just simply a person that turns to Christ and says, will you, will you heal me? It's an acknowledgement that I'm broken. It's acknowledgement rather than denial uh, to Christ that you alone have life. Will you, will you heal me? 
That's what we see. So we see this, script, this context of the scriptural narrative at large. So let me go into the next one. So we see the next slide is the context of the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, what we see is uh, really what God is doing is he's building this multi-ethnic community that's made up of redeemed people from all nations, tribes, and languages. And we get this really at the very beginning of the book of Acts. And this begins to some, uh, sort of unfold itself throughout the remainder of the book of Acts. Um, so... Uh, if you just want to take a very big, overarching look at the book of Acts itself, um, what, what city does the book of Acts begin in? Does anybody know? Trivia. Trivia time. What city? What region of the world? Anybody? Jerusalem? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Israel. Yeah. It's Jerusalem, Israel. Um, maybe someone would argue maybe the Sea of Galilee area, but, but definitely within the heart of, of Israel, Jerusalem. Uh, where's the book of Acts end? What's the last chapter in the book of Acts? Where did, don't, don't look. Don't cheat. This is church. Don't cheat. Where does the book of Acts end? Where does it end? Rome. It begins in Jerusalem. It ends in Rome. What in the world is the author trying to say with this? He's basically saying that this is the trajectory. This is what God's up to. It, it begins in this localized community of Jewish understanding of who God is. But then it expands like a telescope. It begins to expand into all of the world. And this is what we see here. The book of Acts, it's God building a multi-ethnic community made up of redeemed people of all nations, tribes, and languages. So uh, the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, very beginning, if you remember the story, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, go to Jerusalem, wait for the falling and baptizing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon these people. Uh, crazy, unique things, signs, miracles happen. They begin to speak in unknown languages. There's this mighty rushing wind that's blowing through the place. All this uh, spectacular stuff that's happening. And then Peter stands up, and he basically taps the entire scenario into this Old Testament story out of the book of Joel. And he's actually quoting from this ancient Old Testament prophet, which was this. This is what he says. In the latter days, I'm not going to read the entire thing, just a couple uh, select ideas to give you a flavor of this. Um, so he says, in the latter days, God, uh, it shall be done that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on, on all flesh. So emphasize the concept of all flesh. In other words, not just prophets, not just holy, special, anointed people, not just priests, not just a king, not just Jewish people. But the emphasis here is all nations. The word nation, we get the English word ethnicities. All ethnicities. This is not, this, this is literally the gospel, the good news of God's redemptive, healing, saving, forgiving, transforming love that's literally going public to all nations, all tribes, all people, all races, all nationalities, all colors. Verse 21 says, And it shall come to pass that all who call upon the Lord shall be saved. Again, the emphasis is not just all Jews, not just all covenantal people, part of the lineage or the blood of Abraham, all nations, all peoples that call upon the name of the Lord, they will inherit this salvation, this healing of Yahweh. All right, let me go on to the next one, and uh, we will jump in more to some passages. And the third thing is that we see this context of Paul's life and ministry. It'll be really quick in this. So in short, what Paul saw himself, so it's kind of the question, how in the world did Paul see himself and what did Paul see himself doing? Like what was his purpose, his plan for life and so on? Paul actually, I think, saw himself commissioned by God as an apostle. That's why Paul would say, you know, I'm an apostle of God. Paul saw himself commissioned by God to build or to plant these multi-ethnic, spirit-inhabited, 
Jesus communities. Uh, that's what Paul sums up doing. Paul, like, where was the predominance of Paul's ministry? In Jewish territory? Absolutely not. It was actually in Europe, in Asia, Asia Minor, Greece, uh, Rome at some point. Paul really wanted to go to Spain. Uh, that was Paul's, like, like, desire. So if you think as a Jew, uh, the, the farthest part, farthest place away from uh, Jewish territory would be Spain. So in Paul's mind, I think he was thinking, I want to take this good news of God's redemptive, healing, saving love as far as I can go, all the way out to Spain. So Paul saw himself as one going around into various communities, uh, most of which were these massive metropolises, to create, uh, to kind of be a catalyst, to build these little communities uh, that would grow, and they were composed or comprised of both Jew and Gentile, both male and female, both bond and free, people that normally would never put together in common society. Paul is saying, we're going to completely go rogue from how society operates at large, and we're going to do something entirely different because this is what God is up to. So this is what I think Paul saw himself as doing. Brings us now back into Acts chapter 19. And uh, uh, in fact, if you guys want, you can turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 because that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my time. And I will finish after that with some concluding thoughts on all of this. So hopefully you guys are following along. It all makes sense. So back to the context of Acts chapter 19. This leads us now into uh, Ephesians. All right, next slide. Let's see. So Paul had this extensive impact on community, on this community of, of Ephesus. Um, and these were within Ephesus. It was this radically diverse community of people that were both Jew, Gentile, male, and free, slave, and male and female, slave and free. So I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 11, uh, all the way down to the, some beginning part of chapter 3. And I just want to read it. That's all I really want to do. I might make some comments as I go through this, but I just want you to catch the flavor of this and why this is such a big deal. Now, again, going back to everything I just said from this overarching theme of the Bible to the overarching theme of the book of Acts to the overarching theme of Paul's life and ideas, now to this overarching theme of the book of, of, of Ephesus, and why this is such a big deal. So Paul is gathering together, he's sitting down, he's about to say goodbye to this select group of leaders, we call them elders, these leaders that are from this region of Ephesus. Now, what, what was Ephesus? Ephesus was this massive city. Um, it had one of the largest... Um, um, I was going to say cathedral, but temples to the goddess Diana. So it was, it was a center for major paganism. Uh, and it was not just simply religious in terms of its uh, size, but it was also uh, a source of a lot of income. So this pagan uh, temple was not only the means of religious worship, but it was also the means of a lot of money. It was a big money-making industry. And so Paul went to the city and he planted a church. Now, why is this so significant? Well, it's significant because it just sort of embodies uh, the heart of Paul. Now, again, who were the Ephesians? They were pagans. These are people that had no idea, no context of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are people that were very, very, very far from God. These were people that had no paradigm or picture or understanding or context or worldview of Yahweh. These are people that if Paul were to sit down over full off and be like, I want to tell you about Abraham. They'd be like, Abraham who? I don't know who this is. Or Paul's like, I want to tell you about the Ten Commandments or Moses. They'd have no idea as to at all what Paul's talking about. So these would have been categorical depiction of pagans. 
very far from God. Non-Jews. These would be people that Paul normally, under most circumstances, before he met Jesus, he would have never sat down with and had dinner with. Never sat down and broken bread with. Never sat down and shared his life with. But what we see here in the passage is the exact opposite. We see Paul describing uh, to these guys, he says, listen, I live my life with you. And listen to some of the ways in which Paul describes this. My life that I live with you, he says, I live with you in all humility. Not arrogance, not pridefulness. Take a look at that. It's in verse, uh, I think, 19. And then Paul goes on to say, or verse 20, I should say, uh, 19. He says, serving the Lord with all hum- humility. He says, also with all tears. So this is Paul basically saying, when I was with you guys, you non-Jewish people, uh, there was a sense of vulnerability and transparency that I shared with you. Um, this is the exact opposite of Paul having a sense of prejudice or anger or frustration or this idea of pushing them away or aside or in the margins because they are of a different blood than Paul. This is the exact opposite. This is Paul being radically transparent with them. Paul says, with much trials and in the truth, and he goes on to say, with the sense of togetherness, that we worship God together in house to house and in large gatherings. And then finally, we see that Paul saying that, you know, I had these radically reoriented understanding of who God is, where he says, I don't even count my own life as sacred to me anymore. But my number one driving passion and, and, and uh, motor in my life is to communicate to you this glorious good news of this gospel. We'll look more at all of these things I just said uh, next week. But what I really want to focus on is just the extraordinary reality of all of this, is that Paul is literally just simply saying, with these people that are radically different than him ethnically, in fact, at one point, Paul would have actually had major prejudice towards them. Paul now is saying, I have completely become open and unhindered in my love, in my affection, in my vulnerability with you guys. Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus reoriented everything. He turned his life upside down. This is what the gospel does. It changes us. It changes our prejudice, our anger, our prejudging. That's what the word prejudice means. Our propensities to prejudge others because of their skin color, because of how much money they have, because of their age. We do this all the time. We even do this in our community here. may not be necessarily based upon skin color, but I hear this all the time even in St. Louis. Older people tend to look at younger people, and they're like, I'm tired of the students. They're ruining my town. And the students are like, I'm tired of these older people having big houses and driving up the rent. And this tendency to just have, right? Am I not true? Is that true? Totally true. You got to get it. But the point that I make is this, is this type of prejudice. This is nowhere in the heart of Paul. Paul's is like, I shared my life with you. I cried. I wept with you. I was vulnerable before you. That's what the gospel does. So with that, I want, I want to finish just by reading what Paul wrote to this community of people called uh, the Ephesians. This is what Paul actually wrote. So uh, it's kind of lengthy, so just uh, listen or follow along. So I'm just going to read it, and uh, you can listen. Paul says this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, uh, it's very likely that Paul is actually writing, uh, without question, to the very people to whom he's talking face-to-face with right now in Acts chapter 20. Like, this, is, this, is, this, this would have been a later writing, and this is how Paul writes this. He says, don't forget, you Gentiles... You used to be outsiders. This is, this is Paul the Jew. Realizing, looking back, no doubt post or, or pre-Christian world experience, 
and transformation, saying, at one point, you guys, you guys on the radar of life, you weren't even on the radar of life. Like, you guys were outsiders. You were outcasts because you were Gentiles, non-Jews, non-ethnically Jews. And then he says, you were called uncircumcised heathen by the Jews. I'm reading out the New Living Translation. If this is not what matches you, I'm going to typically read the ESV, but I like how this read. So he says, uh, you were called uncircumcised heathen by the Jews. It's a derogatory term, by the way. It's a way of basically saying, you uncircumcised heathen. You're good for nothing but kindling in God's hell. That, that's like the ultimate form of, of prejudice, of judgment, of alienating someone or marginalizing someone. Why? Because of their non-shared ethnicity with you. You guys, you guys following? So he goes on to say, uh, who were proud of their circumcision, the Jews. They were proud, proud of, of their inheritance, their circumcision, um, who they were. Um, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. Verse 12, he says, in those days you were living apart from Christ, you were excluded from the citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises that God had made for them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Verse 13, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far off from God, and now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. So here, what Paul is saying and describing, saying, look, at one point there was this rift that existed. It, it wasn't false. It wasn't fake. It was, it was real. It, it was there. What Paul is saying is that because of something Jesus did, that wall has been eradicated and brought down and crushed and destroyed and ruined. And what Paul is saying is that because of what Jesus has done, a new humanity has been made. Verse 14 says this, For Christ himself was made, has brought peace to us. That word peace uh, would have been tapped into this long, rich history of this uh, great Hebrew word called shalom, which basically means uh, reorienting, putting everything back to right. Um, uh, a way to think about non-peace would be to think about a body that might have an arm or a leg that's out of joint. Um, it, it might not kill you, have an arm or a leg out of joint, but it's extremely, excruciatingly painful. It's hard to focus on anything else because your arm is not in its proper place. And what he's saying is that all humanity, all life, all society, all culture is like this body that's out of joint. There's deep pain, deep angst, deep anguish in humanity at large. But what God is up to is putting back together again these pieces that are out of joint. This is what the idea of the word shalom means. God putting things back to right. He says this, for Christ himself is our peace. Uh, had made peace with us. He united, he united, Jesus united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. So what type of relationship did Jews have with Gentiles? Hostility. They did not like each other. Now someone say, well, was this hostility between humanity and God. Sure, I mean, again, the, 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 the way that this is written could imply that, yes, this hostility was between humanity and God, but without question, it's also a reference to the fact that there was this massive uh, hostility between Jew and Gentile. Why? Uh, bloodline. Race. Um, there's this prejudice, this underlying hostility that was there. And he's saying what Christ has done, that Christ 
remove this. Verse 15, he did this by ending the system of law uh, with its commandments and its regulations. He made peace between Jew and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Verse 16, together as one body, not two, one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other, other uh, towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far from him and peace to the Jews who were, uh, who were near. And again, the idea is not necessarily that they were near to God because they were somehow better, but because they had the scripture, they had understanding of God, whereas Gentiles were very far from the understanding of who God was and whatnot. But what Paul is saying is that the same message of hope, of salvation through Jesus, his blood on the cross, his taking upon himself our brokenness, our sin, our shame, has brought this sense of healing. He says, he brought this good news of peace uh, to Gentiles who are far from him and peace to the Jews who are near. Verse 18 says, and now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. So I want you to imagine in your mind, this is Paul speaking to people that at one point Paul would have seen himself as hostile towards this select group of non-Jewish people. But here's what Paul is saying. He's extending this warmth of welcome and love, which he described when I was among you guys, I wept and I cried and I was vulnerable. He says, but now you Gentiles, you're no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Verse 21 says, we are carefully uh, uh, joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of the dwelling where God lives in his spirit. And summary thoughts in in chapter 3 goes on to say this. I'll just read verse 1, verse 3, and verse 6. This is what he goes on to say. And when Paul says, when I think of all this, uh, some of your translations might say, therefore, when I think of all this. In other words, on reflection of all that I just unpacked and laid down and talked about and elaborated upon, he says, when I think about all of this, I fall to my knees and pray. When I talk about stimulation for worship, this, this theme, this idea, this concept that God was actually at work disrupting the hostility within humanity and that God was taking two people that were once enemies of each other and making them one new family. Paul says, when I think about this, I'm absolutely blown away and I just want to worship God in gratitude. Does that do the same thing in your heart? I mean, when you think about this, it should if you grasp it. I mean, if you fully understand it, if you understand what God is up to, because think about it this way, the flip side of all this. We live in a culture and society today that is deeply divided. And the question is, where the heck are the answers? Is it in greater education? Is it in greater force? Do we just force peace upon people? Do we just force two embattled sides to just somehow, you know, shake hands and kiss and make up? Does that really bring peace? Well, Paul is saying what brought peace was that God revealed to us his true colors of what he's really made of. He's not a God that has come to destroy and crush us who were enemies of him. He has come to reconcile us to himself. We 
are radically different than God. We are other than God. We have acted entirely unlike the one in whom we bear his image. And yet God has not destroyed us. Instead, God has extended a hand of love. And what that has done, when you fully understand that, when you understand the cross, it changes your disposition towards God. God's disposition towards you has never changed. He loves you. He's calling you to lay down your arms, to put down your embattled heart, your anger, your angst, your anxieties, your fears, your frustrations, your pent-up rage at a system that's deeply flawed and deeply broken. And he's inviting you to come allow his love to reorient and reform your heart at the very core of who you are. And when that happens, you become a different person. Paul says, when I think about this, that God has taken people that were once enemies and put them together, not by way of force, but by way of transformed love towards each other. Fall on my face and I worship God. And he finishes with this thought. And he says in verse 3, he says, uh, As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. So Paul says that this is a mystery that, that was kind of hidden throughout all the ages. Like no one ever really knew or ever really fully thought or played out or understood what God was up to in this world. It's what we talked about at the very beginning, kind of like the overarching theme of the whole Bible. That God's plan from the very beginning was not to just simply select Jewish people and say, I'll save them. The rest of humanity that has different color skin, they can all go to hell because they don't really like them. God's plan from the very beginning was to always bring about salvation to the entire planet. But God needed a nation. God's nation that he chose was was Israel. And that should be shocking alone because sometimes we think of Israel as this powerhouse. But the nation of Israel back when God chose it was the weakest of of all nations. It would be like today if God chose a nation, he, he would choose uh, I don't know, like the, the Ar- Ar- Armenians, uh, Ar- Armenians, sorry, not Armenians, uh, the Armenians, you know, or God would choose like the Basque people, right? People that don't really even have a homeland, people that don't even have a real na- a nationality necessarily around land. God would choose people that would be weak or oppressed or the Kurdish people, people that are forgotten. It would be like God saying, I'm going to choose the least, the lowliest, the forgotten, the marginalized, the ones that nobody would ever expect. And they're going to be the ones that will be the means by which salvation will be brought into this world and loosed upon planet Earth. Finally, uh, we see in verse 6, he says, And this is God's plan. Both Jews and Gentiles who believe in the gospel share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body. Both enjoy the promises of blessing because they belong to Christ Jesus this is what Paul is saying. This is, this is when Paul sits down with these Gentile church leaders. All of this is the backstory. Paul is sitting there marveling. He is literally sitting in the very midst of what he would describe as the mystery of God. Look around you. Seriously, right now. Look around you. We're different. Every one of us are different. Different ages, different skin tone different desires, different uh, uh, levels of, of money that you have, different levels of what you've been given, different ages. And you know, what God has done is he's brought all these people that are as unique as they are together and says, this is my family. 
They're held together, not by way of coercion, not by way of fear, not by way of anxiety, not by way of war or violence, but by love. This is why, to the heart of God, reconciliation matters. In conclusion, I want to finish with just two thoughts, and I'm done. That last week, obviously, as I mentioned, uh, was this march in Charlottesville that created all sorts of chaos and angst and all sorts of media response. And I've had people ask me, why even bother? Can you even trust or believe or know what the media is saying and so on and so forth? But see, here's the reality is that regardless of whatever is happening, however the media handles things or chooses to handle that, that to me is almost a whole other point. What I would look at and say, is there systemic angst in terms of uh, within our culture over race? Are people afraid? Are there these things that actually exist? And the answer is yes. And what I would go further on to say is, does the Bible, does God have solutions to these things? Does God speak to these things? And I would say, again, yes. So, yes, there are fears. Yes, there are societal anxieties as to what place and what about the type of uh, ethnocentricities that oftentimes arise in the culture at large. Uh, Yes, these things happen. Yes, the real, yes, the fears that come as a result of them are there. And yes, God has things to say. So two things that I would say, first of all, number one, is that God fully condemns any form of racism. He fully condemns it. And therefore, so should we. Therefore, so should God's people. That any form to basically try to elevate or place above another race, one skin color over another, is is literally a way of undoing the very thing that God is seeking to do. In other words, it's hampering. It's standing in the, very, in the very way of what God's doing. Racism, as I wrote up here, runs contrary to God's redemptive purposes. So therefore, I would suggest this, that as a follower of Jesus, we have to speak against this because it is absolutely unchristlike. It stands in the way of what God is up to in this world. It stands opposed to it. Therefore, it is condemned. And I would say, as I said further, it is a grievous sin to uphold these berries that God ultimately destroys. And there's a handful of verses you can look up. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, where Paul actually says, from one man, God has created all the nations. The story about Jonah is really the story of Jonah having these uh, actual racist ideas towards these people called the Ninevites. God's saying, I want to uh, rescue them and save them. And Jonah's like, absolutely not. I want to see them die. And God's like, you, you, you stand uh, in the wrong place, Jonah. Like this, you are to be condemned like in terms of what you are saying, your beliefs, your ideas. You're standing in, opposed, in opposition to my heart. My heart is to rescue, redeem, and save these horrible enemies of the Jewish people called the Ninevites. And so God rebukes Jonah as a result of that. And then in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, this is the story where Paul actually stands to Peter to his face. He says, Peter, you are to be corrected because what you've done is something that's out of step with the very gospel itself. That Peter was showing some level of preference towards his Jewish counterparts and at the same time sort of stiff-arming Gentile people. So so the subject of racism is a very big deal in Scripture, in the heart of God. It's something that God is up to undoing and unplugging and destroying. And so therefore, we have to fight against it. We have to speak to it. The second thing is that God actually invites us into a radically different way of being human. This is always where the gospel takes us. It's always an invitation 
It's never God saying, do this. It's really God always inviting, saying, be a part of something that's different. And this is God's invitation. This is what Paul would later go on to say in Acts chapter 20, verse 20 to 21. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, testifying both to Jews and Gentiles. And again, notice the emphasis, both Jews and Gentiles. Paul's not saying, I have one message for the Gentiles, one for the Jews. Paul's saying, I have one message. There's one good news to both Jew and Gentile. And this is the message, to turn, to repent toward God and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this sort of coupling of repentance, which means to turn away, turn away from the former things, turn away from that which is within society, within our hearts even at large, that lead towards this disharmony or this brokenness or this dysfunctionality or this sinful proclivities, to turn from these things, to acknowledge them, not be in denial of them, to recognize if they are there. If they are in your heart, if you pause for a moment, you just think about it. If they are there in your heart, just ask God to wash you from those things. Ask God to change your heart, to transform you, and then ultimately to, to have faith. That's what faith is. It's turning towards Christ, receiving God's gift of this humanity, recognizing that all of this is based upon the fact that God in Christ came into this world and rescued us from our sin. Didn't need to. God was under no obligation to have to. But God did it because this is by nature of who he is. He loves. He's gracious even when we are not gracious. He's merciful even when we're not merciful. He's kind even when we're filled with violence and anger and hatred and rage. This is who God is. So the invitation is to repent and to receive and to turn to. So... This is how the gospel responds to the subject of race, racism, and these ideas that God is actually up to creating a brand new humanity, and he's inviting you to be part of that, which means, closing, as people that are part of this new humanity, I think as the Holy Spirit begins to work in our hearts and transform us and reshape us, he reshapes our desires so that we think differently. So rather than listening to cries of oppression and pain and hurt and sorrow and angst, that rather we listen to it from a different way and with, with a greater level of intelligence. And here's what I mean. So for example, in the book of Exodus, uh, the passage says that the children of Israel, they cried. And then it goes on to say, and Yahweh heard them and responded. Um, one interesting reality about that is the ancient rabbis that studied these things One of the things that they noted is that the cry that the Jewish people cried out in Egypt was actually not a cry that was directed towards Yahweh. There's no statement that they actually cried out to Yahweh. So in other words, the implication is that they had no idea even who Yahweh was. They just cried. They were oppressed. They were a people that was under the weight and heaviness and the destructiveness of a foreign uh, entity that was crushing and ruining them. And they cried in the midst of their pain. And yet Yahweh heard. Why? Because Yahweh is a God that hears and responds. And I would suggest that because that same Yahweh and the Holy Spirit and Christ are living in you, that gives us a unique ability, should we say yes, Lord, to listen to the cries and the pain and the hurt of those that are around us, to come alongside. And it comes out in the form of compassion, love, kindness, gentleness, Tears, speaking truth, just like what Paul said. A level of vulnerability 
Because this is who God is, alive, at work, in us. So help, let's, let's help, let's allow the Holy Spirit to help us to become this community of people that resemble the heart of God in this culture and society at large. So, there you go. The gospel speaks to this stuff. So, I want to finish by response to think about all the stuff that Paul referenced and let this become sort of a motivator for us to worship God. So, why don't we all stand? Well, the worship leaders come on up right now and they'll close us in a couple songs or we'll respond by singing. Uh, we have communion that's in the front or in the back. Um, and we have some, we'll have some people up in the front that would love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. I'll be up here. Some of our community group leaders will also be available to pray as well. So if there's anything that's going on in your life, you just need prayer. If maybe you are not a Christian and you want to trust this God that changes our hearts and forgives us and washes us, uh, we'd love to pray with you. Uh, if you're somebody here that you are a Christian even, your life's fine, you just need a touch from God. Uh, we'd love to pray for you too. So let me pray. We'll sing, respond, and partake of communion and finish. So God, thank you for your love. And uh, in this time, this moment, this place, God, we respond uh, with a sense of, of gratitude and awe and thankfulness for what you're up to in this world. And uh, God, we realize this world is, is deeply broken, fractured. And so we, we ask you, Lord, uh, may your kingdom come in this world, on earth as it is in heaven. God, help us to be those emissaries that demonstrate through our lives, through our words, through our actions, through our vulnerability, through our tears, what the kingdom of God truly looks like. So empower us, Holy Spirit, right now, no matter who we are, no matter how we see ourselves, large, small, powerful, powerless, rich, excruciatingly poor, old, young. Holy Spirit, come, empower us to be people that reflect you.